You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. song was recorded by Freddie Boom Boom Cannon and made its way all the way up to number three on Billboard's Hot 100 chart in June of 1962. For those of you old enough to remember the zany gong show television show from the 1970s, its host Chuck Barris, who also created the classics The Dating Game and The Newlywed Game, was the one who penned this song. Situated high above the Palisades Cliffs, you know, right across the Hudson River from New York City, the Palisades Amusement Park opened in 1898 and was one of the most popular family destinations in the United States, that is until it closed on September 12th of 1971. Four high-rise luxury apartment buildings stand on the site today. On October 6, 1946, not far from the former site of the Palisades Amusement Park, on U.S. Route 9W of New Jersey's Palisades Park, a young woman passing through town made the fateful decision to hitch a ride. And it's fateful because she made the mistake of thumbing a police car. Whoops. Bergen County Police Officer Lennon Cottrell questioned the woman, and he was able to ascertain that she's originally from Bozeman, Montana, she was 19 or 20 years old, and that she had just completed a job picking potatoes in Bangor, Maine. A truck driver had driven the young woman to her current location in New Jersey, allowing her to sleep in the back of the truck along the way, and her current destination was Jacksonville, Florida, and that's presumably in search of additional harvesting work. Officer Cottrell searched through her belongings and found nothing out of the ordinary. 
In addition to clothing and a bedroll, she had $14, which would be about $170 today, a photograph of a young man, and a letter addressed to one Mr. Raider. But the one thing he couldn't find was any type of identification. When asked for her name, she refused to answer. As you could guess, the policeman was highly suspect. Not only wouldn't she reveal her name, but he felt that she was, quote, dressed in suspicious manner. Suspicious as in the fact she was wearing a man's shirt, blue jeans that were rolled up halfway between her ankles and knees, she had messy blonde hair, and a dirty face. As a result, he arrested her for disorderly conduct, even though he would later testify in court that she had not been disorderly in any way at all. Upon arrival at the police station, the inspecting matron found a letter in the canvas bag that was addressed to, quote, Susan Bowers, General Delivery, Jacksonville, Florida. When asked if that was her name, she replied, you can call me that if you like. She later admitted this was not her real name. So she was questioned day after day in an effort to determine her identity. But her answer was always the same. Susan Bauer from Bozeman, Montana. In an attempt to figure out who Susan really was, her fingerprints were forwarded on to the FBI, but there was no match. Police in both Bozeman and Jacksonville were contacted, but again they had no record of the woman. She was still in jail 20 days later, that's October 25th, when she found herself in the Hackensack courtroom of Judge Irving S. Reeve, and once again she refused to divulge who she really was. Susan was never advised for rights, nor was she offered any type of legal counsel, so she pled guilty to the charges of hitchhiking and disorderly conduct. Prosecutor Walter G. Winnie asked the judge to sentence the mystery girl to the maximum sentence allowed under the law, and that's because his office had, quote, direct incriminating evidence against her. That evidence was the letter to Mr. Rader found in her possession, and it included a line that read, quote, the nature of charges pending against me and my brother. As a result, Judge Reeves sentenced her to get this, six months in jail for hitchhiking and refusing to tell her name. That lengthy sentence caught the attention of the local Hudson Dispatch newspaper, which commented in an editorial that, quote, even a gambling king doesn't get six months under Jersey justice. Soon, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, was involved, and attorney James E. Major was assigned to the case. The story quickly spread national through the various news services. Reporters referred to her as the Sphinx, Miss Question Mark, and the Mystery Girl. On Thursday, October 31, 1946, Major announced that Judge Reeve had agreed to hear why he felt that the case should be reopened. Major was to appear before him on Monday, November 4th at 9.30 a.m. in his courtroom. The next day, Prosecutor Winnie went one step further, and he announced it would be a whole new trial to determine Susan's guilt or innocence. Winnie explained to Major that Susan was kept in jail mainly for her own safety, you know, while authorities attempted to identify her. Major responded by saying, quote, She just thinks her background is her own business, and maybe it is. 
Susan was the model prisoner. You know, she was very polite, courteous. She caused no trouble at all. She was quoted in the press as having stated that she, quote, hates cops but likes jail. And Susan would talk freely about just about anything, just not herself. Police detective Andrew Hune talked with Susan a number of times and questioned why she was being so stubborn, to which she replied, I guess I was just born that way. She was examined by three county hospital psychologists, all of whom found her to be perfectly sane. On the 30th day of her imprisonment, she was back in court for her second trial. The newspaper PM, that's a defunct New York City newspaper, reported that as she entered the courtroom, quote, her face was pale and showed no trace of makeup. She was wearing a simple lavender dress, silk stockings, and dirty brown and white low-heeled shoes. Attorney Majors argued that a person traveling on a highway was not required to answer every single question asked by a police officer. Refusal to answer a question did not imply that one was acting in a disorderly manner. Officer Cottrell was called to the stand where he explained why he chose to arrest Susan. When he stated that she was disheveled and she was wearing blue jeans, the courtroom erupted in laughter when the judge commented, My daughter wears jeans. Major then asked the judge to dismiss the charges, to which he replied, quote, Mr. Major, I assure you I have no desire to keep this lady in jail any longer than necessary. After 81 minutes, the trial was over. Everyone would have to wait two days for the judge to issue his decision. The next day, while Susan was still sitting in jail awaiting the judge's decision, the press reported that a Plattsburgh, New York woman named Bessie Bushy had seen Silent Susan's picture in the newspaper and was certain that she was her missing daughter. Mrs. Bushy hadn't seen her daughter in five years, but told investigators she had a distinguishing pockmark between her eyebrows. One can only imagine the mom's disappointment when Susan showed prison attendants that she didn't have that pockmark. On Wednesday, November 6th, everyone gathered back in the courtroom, with Susan being escorted in at 9.27. This time, she was wearing a blue suit, nylon stockings, and a new pair of sports shoes that someone had given to her. But there was a delay in the prosecutor getting to court, so the judge opted to deal with a few other cases during the intervening time. My favorite was that of a man named John Hughes, who had used an offensive slur against a pregnant woman. Judge Reeve gave him a $100 fine, that would be about $1,200 today, or he could choose for 30 days in the slammer. He opted for jail. And finally, the judge read his decision, all three pages of it, and he once again found Susan guilty. He sentenced her to 40 days on the same charge of disorderly conduct, but that included the 32 days already served, plus time off of good behavior. So theoretically, she could leave that Friday. His justification for the verdict was a nearly forgotten law written back in 1799, which stated that someone is guilty of disorderly conduct if that person, quote, wanders abroad with no fixed dwelling and cannot make good account of himself. Judge Reeves stated that she met this criterion based on three elements. Susan had loitered, she slept without shelter, and had failed to, quote, give a good account of herself. 
after the judge finished reading his verdict, Mr. Major said, quote, Your Honor, I think this young lady has already suffered plenty. I see no reason why she should suffer more. To which he replied, I admit she has suffered a great deal, but whose fault was that? Major said that the ACLU would appeal a decision, and that's because they didn't want to set a precedent that could possibly deprive a citizen of their constitutional rights. The next day, while Susan awaited her release, a story ran in the New York Post discussing how heartless she had been through this whole ordeal. By not telling the court who she really was, coupled with the fact that her pictures were appearing in the press nationwide day after day, she was allowing a number of parents to become convinced that she may be their missing child. They reported on one woman from Columbus, Ohio, who was so certain that Susan was her daughter that the family scrounged up the money needed so that the mother could travel to New Jersey the very next day. And within seconds of looking at Susan in person, she knew that she wasn't her missing daughter. In another instance, both father and husband of a missing woman drove 200 miles, that's 320 kilometers, to find out the same exact thing. Two other distraught husbands plus one gypsy also came in hope that Susan was their missing daughter. Also revealed for the first time in the article was that two knives had been found in Susan's bag when she was picked up. One was a basic utility knife, so that was no big deal, but the other was a 5-inch or 25-centimeter long commando knife. I should point out that neither knife was against the law to own in New Jersey at the time. So Friday finally rolled around and Susan went nowhere. She'd expressed concerns to the judge that she wasn't quite ready to face all the reporters and photographers that were certain to be outside the jail when she was released. That's when Attorney Major stepped in and made arrangements for her to secretly leave jail. At 11.15 a.m. on Saturday, November 9th, which would have been her 36th day in custody, the woman known to the world only as Susan Bauer became a free woman. By being released a few hours earlier than scheduled, she was able to avoid the press entirely. Susan told everyone that she intended to resume her journey onto Florida. The ACLU offered to pay her fare south, and then a band leader came forward and offered to do the same in exchange for her appearing in a stage show. In addition, she had major offers from the big city newspapers and, of course, the wire services for her story. She also received more than 20 marriage proposals. She declined every single one of the offers, from the free rides to the marriage proposals. Her lawyer first drove her to his home in Ridgewood, where Susan changed clothes. Then, with Mrs. Major now in the car, they drove to the New York side of the George Washington Bridge, and they dropped her off. He offered her $5, but once again she politely said no. That was the last he ever saw of her. Within 45 minutes of her release, Bergen County officials received a telephone call from Maryland State Police to hold her. They believe that she could be a possible escapee. Sorry guys, she's already gone. Six days after her release, a guy named Brooks Atkinson wandered into the sheriff's office in Holton, Maine, and he examined various photos of this woman known as Susan. He immediately identified her as his sister, that's 20-year-old Betty Jean Atkinson. 
He said she had left home in September to seek work in Florida, and he claimed that he knew what that mysterious letter to Mr. Rader was all about, although he refused to discuss it. Yet, after a couple of days, the name Betty Jean Atkinson was never mentioned in the press again, so we can assume, just like all those parents of missing children, this may have been a false identification. Or maybe it wasn't. Susan may have been long gone, but the ACLU decided that they needed to press on with their case, and that was to avoid setting any type of precedent. Attorney Major appeared before Judge A. Demarest Del Mar, and he obtained an order for review of the decision. On February 5, 1947, he issued a statement and refused to rule on the constitutionality of the arrest and conviction. He wrote, quote, at best, she can be called a migrant worker begging rides from passing motorists. He continued, Certainly a woman who, as this one did, accepts the hospitality of any truck driver and sleeps in his truck is not so careful of her reputation as to require the protection of this court. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On Sunday, March 30th of 1947, a young, slender, blonde-haired woman who just happened to be wearing blue denim trousers was picked up for a hitchhiking right outside of Tombstone, Arizona. Does this sound familiar? She was brought into the courtroom of Superior Court Judge Gordon S. Farley in Nogales, Arizona, and that was for a sanity hearing. The woman refused to answer any of the judge's questions, which included basic details like her name and her dress. The judge quickly realized that this could be Susan Bauer, the same woman who had been set free just 143 days earlier. She was clearly in need of help, so he committed her to the Arizona State Hospital for the Insane under the name Jane Doe for evaluation. A few days later, fingerprint results came back from the FBI, and they confirmed that the woman that they had in their care was, in fact, the same Susan Bauer. Confronted with this evidence, she finally admitted, That's me. The hospital superintendent, that's Dr. John A. Larson, said that she was, quote, suffering from a psychosis, but he was soon able to win her confidence and find out who she really was. Her family was contacted and she was sent home a couple of weeks later. The doctor promised her that he would not release her name, and he never did. It remains a mystery to this day. But that's not the end of the story. While Susan had returned home, and, you know, we can only hope went on to live a wonderful life, the ACLU continued to fight her case. On June 3, 1947, the New Jersey State Supreme Court unanimously reversed her conviction. Chief Justice Clarence E. Case wrote, quote, We discover no sound reason why the officer should have pressed the accused to give a minute account of herself. He continued, it is not an offense to have a dirty face, or to wear blue overalls, or to travel by gratuitous rides from Bangor, Maine to Florida, or sleep in a truck, or to pick potatoes in one part or another part of the country, or 
with $14 in pocket to be temporarily out of employment while on the way from the completion of one job to the search for another one. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. This has been another front page drama from the files of the American Weekly. Naturally, real names have not been used. The whole family will find plenty of interesting things they never knew before in the American Weekly. The American Weekly is the magazine that contains unusual features for the whole family. And that's why it's enjoyed by readers in over nine and a half million homes from coast to coast. There are articles on science and medicine, helpful household cooking and beauty hints, also magnificently illustrated stories of romance, adventure, and mystery in the American Weekly. The whole family will love the true, exciting stories in it. The American Weekly is carried with a leading Sunday paper that's on sale in this city. Ask your news dealer for the Sunday paper that carries the American Weekly and share in the nation's reading habit. That commercial for American Weekly magazine is from the July 22nd, 1951 episode of Front Page Drama. It ran on radio from the 1930s through the 1950s, and most people called the program the American Weekly Show because all the stories were taken from the pages of the American Weekly. The magazine started its life on November 1st of 1896 as the Sunday American Magazine. And just like most newspapers today, it was included as an insert into William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal every single Sunday. At its peak, American Weekly was said to have had a circulation of 50 million readers. But since I found many of the stories in the publications to be highly exaggerated, that may also be true of their circulation claims. Its name was changed to Pictorial Living in 1963, and the publication ceased in 1966. A few of the stories I recorded for this podcast were originally found in old American Weekly issues. That includes the recent Yonkers anti-shorts law that I recorded, which was just a one-paragraph mention in another article I was reading, and then there was the story of the Canary Funeral. But as I stated, American Weekly versions of these stories are highly sensationalized and they're inaccurate, so I always turn to alternative and more reliable sources when researching further. So this summer, my wife and I did a lot of antiquing. We had a list of five things we wanted to purchase for our home, and we found none of them. Well, I shouldn't say we found some of them, but they were way too crazy in price. One thing we did see numerous times were old Monopoly game tokens. And almost all these game pieces that were for sale were fairly modern. They were very recognizable, so they were basically of little value to collectors. So I have a question for you. In 2013, the Monopoly Iron game piece was retired, and it was replaced by a cat. Now, numerous other tokens have been retired over the years, so I'm going to give you a list of five tokens. Four of them are indeed retired, and the other one has never, ever been used in a standard Monopoly set. So which one of the following tokens has never, ever been used? Was it one, an elephant, two, a lantern, three, a purse, four, a rocking horse, or five, a television? Hmm... So let's hear what a few of my friends had to say. A purse. Elephant. The lantern. Elephant. The lantern. I asked a number of other people, but they all got it wrong. 
Not a single person had the right answer. It turns out the answer is the television. The lantern, purse, and rocking horse were all discontinued in the early 1950s, and they're pretty hard to find. Due to the shortage of metals during World War II, Parker Brothers was forced to switch to wooden or composite tokens in 1942, and that included the elephant. So if you have one of those sitting in a drawer somewhere, you may actually have something valuable. If you're curious, here's a list of the current tokens in a standard Monopoly set. There's a wheelbarrow, battleship, race car, thimble, boot, Scotty dog, top hat, and a cat. Supposedly, the Scotty dog is the most popular token, but I have to tell you, I've always preferred the race car. In other news, here are a few stories from the past that gave a glimpse into the future. I'll quote the Moody Blues and call this section Days of Future Past. On December 6, 1954, the New York Times ran a story describing a brand new invention, and it could cook an 18-pound roast of beef in 20 minutes, a chicken in 9, an apple pie in 6, and it could heat up a steak in 1 minute. This new cooking machine was to be marketed as the radar range, and it used microwaves, of course, to heat up the food. And while nearly everyone today owns a microwave oven, the initial high cost of these models was sure to keep the average buyer away. You're going to love these prices. A table model was to sell for $1,875. That's about $16,700 today. And if you wanted a wall model, that was priced at a whopping $2,975. That's about $26,500 adjusted for inflation. Appliance manufacturer Tappan was in the testing phase of this newfangled contraption, and they estimated that they would have a home version on the market in the year to come. I did a quick check, and apparently only 34 microwave ovens were sold in 1955. That's the first full year that they were on sale. When production was discontinued in 1964, a grand total of 1,396 units had been purchased in total. That's it. It wasn't until the price significantly dropped and the ovens were made more compact that sales really started to take off. A June 2, 1959 syndicated AP article discusses a new invention by RCA called the Hear-See. It would enable someone to make a recording of their favorite television program or create their own home movies and play it back on a television set. The Home-See was clearly a little ahead of its time, but what they're referring to, of course, is an early VCR system. RCA estimated that the recorder would cost about $500 in mass production, and the camera may set you back an additional $100. To put that in perspective, today that would be about $4,100 for the recorder and $820 for the camera. And in our last story for today, when historians look back in time, they tend to name certain periods of mankind with broad names. You know, there's the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Renaissance, and so on. Well, on January 18, 1962, Jesse Bogue, writing for UPI, went out on a limb and predicted that the 20th century would forever be known as the Tape Age. Looking back, you may laugh at that statement, but magnetic tape was everywhere at the time. Besides the obvious recorded voice and image, magnetic tape was used in storing computer data, it was helping to guide planes and missiles, and really just about anything else where information was needed to be stored. 
3M Divisional Vice President Dr. W. W. Wetzel stated, quote, Magnetic tape and the tape recorder have become the pencil and paper of the electronic age. Personally, I think that the author should have paid more attention to that quotation. The electronic age may have been a more appropriate name than the tape age for the 20th century. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'm a little late in getting this podcast together because I had someone scheduled as a guest to be on the show. And after I did all the research, she backed out at the last minute. So I had to start from scratch. Anyway, you can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And of course, in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and of course, uh, clicking on the like button. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or any of uh, the podcasting indexing services out there, and you'll receive automatic updates when I release a new episode. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in next time. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.